Hey everybody, how are you today? My name is Taylor and this is Morbid Academy. Happy December, happy holiday season. Hanukkah just ended. There are a bajillion holidays in December. So happy holiday season. I am in my podcast corner again. I am so happy I am back in my podcast corner. I would like to shout out to my mom. Happy birthday to my mama. I love you so much. You are amazing and I love you. And tomorrow, I am so excited. I am seeing Evanescence and Hailstorm live. I am so freaking excited. You have no idea. If you just heard a growl, that was my dog, not a demon. Just so you know. Just just so we're clear. That was my dog, not a demon. Although sometimes he does act like a little demon. But anyway, I hope your December is going great. Hope your holiday season is going great. This week's episode, I am covering the case of John List and the List family murders. So this guy basically created the term family annihilator, or at least it wasn't really used at all until him. And according to one article I read, quote, List exists as a flesh and blood boogeyman in both his hometown and in the town where he committed his brutal crimes, end quote. So cool. John List was born and raised in Bay City, Michigan, my home state, but we we don't claim him. We don't claim him. But according to a Facebook page called Memories of Bay City, people still share stories from when he lived there. One person said that their father put a roof on his home when he was a kid and John who was always neat and clean would just sit on the porch like all day every day watching the kids in the neighborhoods play because I guess his mom wouldn't let him play with the kids and then another person on there said quote Bay City will never escape his infamy end quote I feel like that's a tagline for a book about him so What happened to make John List so infamous? Well, let's get started, shall we? John Emil List was born September 17, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan, and was the only child of John Frederick List, who was 66 at the time of his birth, and Alma Barbara Florence List, who was 38 at the time. Yeah, 28-year age difference. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I'm not judging it. I'm just, I'm just interested. I'm just, inst- I'm, I'm honestly just interested in age differences between people. Like, truly. No judgment. Unless you're, like, under the age, obviously. Because that's just wrong. And no. But anyway, that's not the point. John was raised in a very religious Lutheran household. Also, German household. So, super religious German Lutheran household is strict, y'all. And his father taught Sunday school. John also followed in his father's footsteps with regards to being a devout Lutheran through his whole life and a Sunday school teacher at some point. I couldn't find exactly when he was a school Sunday school teacher. And his mother was said to be very domineering and overprotective of him. From all the articles I found, John had a pretty normal childhood. Nothing of note was written about his childhood. He didn't show any signs of any psychological problems. He was a loner 
didn't have a lot of friends in high school and didn't have a very active social life, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Honestly, if I didn't do drama club in high school, I'd probably be a loner and no active social life either, so. I mean, that's that's me now. Let's be honest, that's me now. John graduated high school in 1943 and then enlisted in the United States Army where he served as a laboratory tech during World War II. In 1944, his father died at the age of 85 and in 1946, John was discharged from the Army and enrolled at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor where he earned his bachelor's degree in business and then a master's in accounting. So good for you, John. In 1950, with the escalation of the Korean War, John was called back to the army and was commissioned as a second lieutenant, whatever that means. I did not do a little dive into that because whatever. And he was stationed at Fort Eustis in Virginia, where he met Helen Morris Taylor. Helen was about 25 or 26 when she met John and she had been married to second lieutenant Marvin Everett Taylor and had two kids together, Brenda Joyce, who was born in 1942, and Kenneth Everett Taylor, who was born in 1944, but unfortunately he died at the age of only like nine weeks old. And then Marvin died in North Korea on April 16th, 1951. And then like, I don't know how long after Marvin's death, Helen and John started dating, but I think it was rather quick because a few months after they started dating, Helen told him that she was pregnant and being the devout Lutheran that he was, he proposed to her and they got married in December of 1951. So nine months after her husband died, she and John get married. Now in one article I read, it said that John had said Helen pressured him into marrying her by faking a pregnancy. Now, I don't know if that is true or not. I mean, it does. I did just say that he proposed to her because she said he, she was pregnant, which she, I mean, no child came of that pregnancy if it was real. So... Is John telling the truth in saying that she pressured him by faking a pregnancy? Or was she pregnant and unfortunately had a miscarriage? I don't know. I literally saw one article that said that. However, multiple articles said that she told him she was pregnant and that's why they got married December 1951. So who knows? Either way, very quick romance. John was then assigned to the Finance Corps, which is a combat service support branch of the United States Army, and was then discharged in 1952. He then moved the family to California. Remember, Helen had Brenda from her first marriage. So they moved to California, and then they moved to Detroit, Michigan, where John worked for an accounting firm. Patricia, their oldest, was born in 1955, and then... John took a job at a paper company in Kalamazoo where he then settled his family. And then Helen and John had two more kids together. John Jr., who was born in 1956, and Frederick, who was born in 1958. By 1959, John had risen to become the general supervisor of the paper company's accounting department. And unfortunately, Helen had become an alcoholic and was becoming increasingly unstable. 
like mentally unstable. And the two of them would just constantly fight. In 1960, Brenda, Helen's daughter from her first marriage, moved out of the home when she got married. And then John took a very lucrative job at Xerox and moved the family to Rochester, New York. So fancy dancy. Eventually, he became the director of accounting services. And in 1965, he accepted a job as vice president and comptroller, which is a person who supervises the quality of accounting and financial reporting at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. So then he once again moved the family and his mother to Breeze Knoll, a very classy, very simple, very modest 19-room Victorian mansion with a ballroom, marble fireplaces, and a Tiffany skylight that was rumored to be signed by Tiffany in Westfield, New Jersey. Modest. Classy. So simple, right? 19... Yeah. Damn. So... Right now, it sounds like John had a great life, right? John and his family were, quote, the embodiment of the American dream. He had a great job, beautiful home, a ginormous home, loving family. They went to church every Sunday. Lies. All lies. On top of Helen being a alcoholic and the couple fighting all the time, Helen was also her mental state was just crumbling. She was con she was increasingly men becoming mentally unstable due to undiagnosed advanced syphilis, which she contracted from her first marriage. So a lot of psychological stress on her, from her, on the family. Also, John had been fired from every single job he ever had. And he had also been fired from his current job as the vice president and comptroller at the bank. So fantastic. According to reports, John had been fired from all of his jobs because of his cold demeanor and his, quote, inability to be social with his co-workers. He was shy and said to be disinterested in even talking to his superiors. So something going on there. And to top it off, it's like the little cherry on top. He never once told his family at all. He never told his family. He would leave the house every morning all dressed up. He's like, bye, honey. I love you. I'm going to work. See you, kids. Have a good day at school. I'm going to work. Bye, ma. I'm going to work. He'd leave. He'd go to the train station and he would sit on his ass at the train station, reading the newspaper, reading books, and then come home and be like, oh, huh, that was such a long day at work. How are you, honey? How was your day? My day? Oh, yeah. Work. Work, work, work. Oh, I can't believe it. Yeah. He did that. But no job, no money. He was skimming money from his mother's bank account so he could make the mortgage payments. But soon, financial burden on the family was becoming too much and was causing John severe psychological distress and was, and he was depressed. Yeah, no shit. 
if you're not depressed by that, I would worry about you. If you weren't stressed out about that, I would, I would worry about you. If you weren't telling your family, I would be worried about you. One article by allthatsinteresting.com said, quote, he refused to go on welfare as it would entail excruciating embarrassment in the community and violate the principles of self-sufficiency that he learned at his father's knee, end quote. So, I mean, it's the 1960s. He's the man. Don't think his wife was working. He has three kids in school. Yeah, he's psychological stress from job, loss of job, no money, and on top of the whole, I'm the man, I need to be able to provide for my family. Again, if that wasn't bothering you, I would be extremely worried about you. So of course, for John, he thought he was a complete failure of a man because he couldn't provide for his family. And according to one article I read, Patricia, his oldest, wanted to become an actress, which was not acceptable to John at all. For him, being a Lutheran, that was like the, like, a gateway to Satan, I guess. Also, I want to be clear that I'm just stating the facts of him being a religious Lutheran person. I am not saying if you are Lutheran, you're a bad person. I'm not saying that at all. If you're religious, cool. If you're not religious, cool. You do you, boo-boo. I'm just stating the facts that he was Lutheran, he was religious, and these were his beliefs and all of that jazz. I just want to be clear about that. So, where was I? Um, oh, Patricia wanted to be actress. That wasn't acceptable to John. And on top of that, on top of everything else, foreclosure proceedings had started on the mansion. So we got financial problems. We got psychological distress. We got family problems. We got family problems with Helen and her drinking and her own mental health. Oh, and a quote, religious epiphany where John realized there was only one way to save his family. On the morning of November 9th, 1971, John saw his three kids off to school and then he loaded his 9mm Steyr handgun and a 22 caliber revolver. He went into the kitchen where his wife Helen, who was 45, was drinking her usual morning coffee and shot her in the back of the head, killing her instantly. John then went up to the third floor apartment where his 84-year-old mother lived and shot her in the left eye, killing her instantly. He then dragged Helen's body on a sleeping bag into the ballroom, cleaned up the kitchen, and then he was unable to move his mother's body down the stairs, so he just, like, left her in the upstairs hallway. Around noon, Patricia, who was 16, and Frederick, who was 13, returned home from school, and as they walked in the door, John shoots both of them in the back of the head. He then drags them into the ballroom on sleeping bags, lays them next to their mother, and then he was like, you know what? I've had such a hard day. I'm gonna make some lunch. So he just makes himself some lunch and sits there and eats it. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Then after that, he cleans up, and then he drives to the bank to close both his and his mother's bank accounts. 
empties his mother's savings account, I believe, and then goes to watch his son, John Jr., who was 15, play in his soccer game. He just killed his his wife, his kids, his mother, and is now watching his son play soccer. He drives his son home. He's all casual, like nothing happened. John Jr. walks into the house and John shoots him, but the gun misfires. John would later say that his son tried to defend himself, but he ended up shooting him 10 times in the face and chest until he was sure that he was dead. Again, John dragged his son into the ballroom next to his wife and other kids. Again, John dragged his son into the ballroom next to the others. He then cleaned up everything, called the kids school to say that they would be absent for a couple weeks because they were going to visit an ailing family member, which was true. Their maternal, Helen's mother, was sick and had actually canceled a trip up to see them. And John had said that if she had been there, he would have killed her too. He then stopped all the mail deliveries and stopped the milk deliveries. And then he sat down and wrote a five-page confession to his pastor about what he did. And here are some of the things that he wrote in the letter. I am very sorry to add this additional burden to your work. My actions went against all I had been taught and that my account will not make it right. I leave myself in the hand of God's justice and mercy. He then went on to say that God could have helped him in his time of distress, quote, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers, end quote. He said that he shot them from behind because he, quote, didn't want any of them to know even at the last second that I had to do this to them, end quote. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them. That was the least I could do. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. I know that many will only look at the additional years they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. This guy is messed up. Basically, he said that he killed his family because he wanted to save their souls before they gave up Christianity and gave in to modern ways, whatever that's supposed to mean. There was too much evil in the world. This was the only way their souls could get to heaven. And God didn't answer his prayers in his time of need. So cool. What? You messed up, John. You're messed up. He then put the letter on his desk in the study where it was later found, then took scissors and removed his image from every single photograph in the home. Every single one. That pol police couldn't find anything for a, for like a wanted poster. There were none whatsoever. He then went to bed. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm Yeah, he just went to bed. And the next morning, he turned down the thermostat, so it was nice and chilly in there. He turned on all the lights, and then turned on the radio to play in all of the rooms, because I guess there was a fancy-dancy intercom system. And then he left the house and wasn't seen again for 18 years. John had planned the murder of his family so well and so meticulously 
that the bodies weren't discovered until a month later on December 7th, 1971. The family was, I guess, pretty secluded. They didn't go out much. And like I said before, John had stopped all deliveries to the house. Neighbors had noticed that the lights were always on, even at night, and they didn't see really any activity, but I guess they didn't think much of it until they started seeing lights burning out one by one. So like one in the kitchen would go out and then the ballroom light would go out and then this one and this one and they weren't being changed. So the neighbors finally called the police and when they got there, they start knock, knock, knocking on the door, but obviously nobody gonna answer unless there's a ghost to go, which I'm sure that place would be haunted. I just have a feeling. Anyway, nobody answers. So they start looking through the windows and that's when they saw the bodies in the ballroom. Bodies in the ballroom. Now that's a book title. It's fine. It's probably already a title for like a Goosebumps or something. What was the, wasn't there a book series from like elementary school where they were alliterations, but they were creepy books? I don't think it was Goosebumps. It was something similar to Goosebumps, I think. I mean, or, or it could be Goosebumps and I just have a bad memory. Anyway. Police get into the house and the first thing that they notice, probably other than the smell of five dead bodies, was that the radio was still playing in all of the rooms. And that's just fucking creepy. No thank you. Then the police launched a nationwide manhunt for John List and the case quickly became the second most infamous crime in New Jersey only surpassed by the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby in 1932. Police found John's car at the JFK airport in New York, but there wasn't any record of him buying a ticket or flying anywhere. He was just gone. There were hundreds of leads, but they all came to a dead end. The mansion remained empty for the next nine months until it was destroyed by a fire in August 1972. It was officially ruled as arson, but it is still a unsolved case. They never figured out who did it. There were no leads, no suspects, anything. So that's still a mystery. And a new house was built on the spot in 1974. Fun fact, the Tiffany skylight, the, st the Tiffany stained glass skylight that was destroyed was worth $100,000 at the time, which is about $661,696 today. First of all, that's a lot of sixes and kind of annoying to say, so I'm glad I got it right in the first try. And oh my god, that's just ridiculous. So now, fast forward 18 years to March 1989, when the show America's Most Wanted aired a segment on the List family murders which featured a clay bust of John List that had been age-progressed to, to resemble what he would look like now, or 1989. Forensic expert Frank Bender, who created the bust, gave it horn-rimmed glasses, saying that List wouldn't be vain enough to wear contact lenses, and he would wear thick-rimmed glasses to disguise his appearance. 22 million people watched that episode and the tips just came pouring in 
including one tip from a woman in Richmond, Virginia, who said that her neighbor, Robert Peter Clark, had a striking resemblance to the bust. And on June 1st, 1989, just like two weeks after the episode aired, John List was arrested at a Richmond accounting firm where he was indeed wearing the same kind of glasses that the bust had been wearing. That Frank Bender knows what he's doing. So of course, John continued to stand by his alias. I am Robert Peter Clark. I'm not this John List, blah, 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 whatever. And that he was innocent. But he was finally faced with the irrefutable evidence, which included a fingerprint match from his military records. And he confessed that he was John List in February 1990. But of course, he still maintained his innocence. During the trial, the FBI discovered that in 1971, after the murders, John had driven his car to JFK Airport, then went back to New Jersey, where he took a train to Michigan. He then moved on to Colorado in 1972, where he took up an accounting position in Denver under the name of Robert Peter Clark, which he said he got the name from a classmate in college. But later on, that classmate said he has no idea who John List is. So, fun. He joined the local Lutheran church and ran a carpool service. And then he met Dolores Miller. And in 1985, the two got married. And three years later, they moved to Midlothian, Virginia, where they lived happily ever after for the next year because then he was arrested in 1989. John's defense argued that he suffered from PTSD from his military service, but expert psychologists believe that he was just going through a midlife crisis, which, I mean, yeah, psychological distress, family drama, family problems, financial problems, yeah, I would say that would be a midlife crisis. But that doesn't mean you kill your whole fucking family, John. And obviously, the prosecution was like, no, that. Yeah, he may have had a midlife crisis, but that doesn't excuse this. And on April 12th, 1990, John List was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to five life terms in prison. During an interview that John did with Connie Chung in 2002, he said that he never committed suicide because that would prevent him from going to heaven, and he still believed that he would go to heaven, and he died. Quote, all he wanted was to reunite with his wife, mother, and children in the afterlife where he believed there would be no pain or suffering, end quote. Which is, it, that, yeah, I mean, I believe that too. But I don't, I don't know if you're going to go to heaven after murdering your entire family, John. And on March 21st, 2008, John List died at the age of 82 from pneumonia. Today, the memory continues to haunt Westfield, New Jersey, and in an interview that was done in 2008, parents said that kids won't even walk past the house, even though that the house there isn't the house where the murders occurred, because that mansion burnt down and a new building, a new house was built, so, and I guess people don't want to live on the same street. That article is also 14 years old, but. That is the case of John List, family annihilator. Again, Michigan does not claim this man. 
I highly doubt New Jersey claims him either. Nobody claims him. He, he's messed up. He, he had issues and he needed to talk to somebody. Better help. You want to sponsor me? This would be a great, great episode to sponsor me on. Yeah. Get help. It's okay to ask for help. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please go to therapy if, if you need to. If you don't think you need therapy, go to therapy. Everybody needs therapy. Everybody, everybody needs therapy at some point in their life. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know your thoughts. Because, wow, this case. He literally, he, he just snapped one day and said, let's plan a murder. Yay. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review wherever you do the thing. It really helps me out and it helps get the podcast out there. As always, you can find Morbid Academy on your favorite podcast service app thing with new episodes out on Fridays and the videos out on Saturday on YouTube at Coffee, Creeps, and Cake. If you'd like to get the episodes early, bonus content, first looks, and more, please consider donating to patreon.com slash morbidacademy. If you would like to make a one-time donation of your choosing without having to become a member, you can do that over at buymeacoffee.com slash morbidacademy. You can check out the merch at morbidacademymerch.com. If you get a shirt, please tag me in a picture on Instagram or Facebook. I would love to see you repping the podcast. It would make me so happy. You can follow along on Instagram and Facebook at Morbid Academy. And if you have a case you would like me to cover in future episodes, if you have a creepy story of your own so I can do an awesome listener's tale because I want to read your creepy stories because I know y'all have them, you can send all of that over to me at morbidacademy at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you keep it creepy, friends. Bye-bye.